Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Our gospel reading today is John, second chapter of John, verses 13 to 22. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all, all of them, out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show for us doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. So let us pray. Holy God, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of your word. We give you thanks and praise that you're the God who desires to be known. And so that we, so we pray that you would uh, help us to hear your word well, that you would help us to know you better so that we can make you better known in this world. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds would be acceptable in your sight. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So when I was a teenager, um, it was popular in certain Christian circles to wear bracelets with the letters WWJD on them. Uh, the, the acronym stood for What Would Jesus Do? Right? And they, they came in every color and design from tie-dye to camouflage. Some were rubber, some were uh, woven like friendship bracelets. And, and the idea was that uh, this reminder on the wrist would would give a person pause when they were tempted to act in some way that was unbecoming of the name of Jesus. You know, it was supposed to help people uh, be more loving or more patient or more self-controlled as they move through the, the day. Now, it's been a long time since I've seen a WWJD bracelet. I'm not sure anyone wears them anymore. Uh, maybe just because fads fade. Uh, but I have to wonder if it's not because someone realized what a dangerous and foolish thing it is to ask what would Jesus do if you have any intention of actually doing what Jesus would do. Uh, you know, I talked last week about the crew in San Francisco who uh, sold or gave away half of their stuff for the sake of the poor just because, well, Jesus says to. It's one thing for a youth group to encourage each other to be vaguely nicer to people. It's an altogether different thing if they start to bring the truly weary and heavy laden, the riffraff and the wretched, to church. 
And it's one thing not to lay on the horn at the jerk who doesn't know how to drive through a roundabout. <clears throat> it's another thing altogether to love and to pray for our enemies. Needless to say, when the WWJD campaign was conceived, I don't think that uh, today's gospel was what anyone had in mind. You know, flipping tables and chasing people with a whip is, well, it's just not very Christ-like, is it? <laughs> except, except here we are. <laughs> what would Jesus do? Well, here Jesus gets angry. And this is not an isolated incident. Jesus gets angry other places too. But, you know, I'm often inclined to sort of tiptoe around Jesus' anger. Uh, I tend to talk a lot more about Jesus' love, and, you know, spoiler alert, I'm going to do that again today. Uh, but there's no denying that Jesus is perfectly capable of throwing a holy temper tantrum. And I think my, my inclination not to focus so much on Jesus' anger has, as much as his love, has at least in part to do because I believe in the end Jesus' word to us is peace. You know, when Jesus is raised from the dead, when he shows up to his disciples who all totally bailed on him at his hour of greatest need, cowards, every one of them, he doesn't yell and scream at them and chase them around with a homemade whip like they probably deserve. He says, peace be with you. And then just in case they missed it, he says it again, peace be with you. And then he says it again, peace be with you. That seems to be what he wants us to hear when it's all said and done. I don't know who needs to hear this today, but Jesus is not mad at you. <laughs> and another reason I tend not to focus on, on Jesus' anger is that the world these days is just super saturated with anger. And people are angry about so many things. Now, this week, I couldn't believe that a staggering number of people on the internet were angry because the toy company Hasbro has come out and said that Mr. Potato Head is gender nonspecific. In case you're not familiar with this toy, it's a vaguely potato-shaped piece of plastic that you can put different hats and eyes and mouths on. And there used to be a Mr. Potato Head and a Mrs. Potato Head, but now you can go ahead and put the girl lips on the boy potato. And this seems to have some people very concerned about the state of things. <laughs> now, clearly, we just don't need much encouragement to get angry. Now, that said... Anger is a, a perfectly reasonable, even holy response to a situation that isn't right. It probably means that we're paying attention. You know, the Bible is not shy about God's anger. The prophets get angry. Jesus gets angry. St. Paul encourages us to get angry, but, and here's the catch, not to sin. Which is to say, get angry about the right things, but... Don't let anger become hatred or bitterness. Don't let anger absorb our capacity to seek peace. Don't let anger dehumanize others, but let it be the fire that transforms a situation for the good. Let the root of our anger not be self-centered indignation, but God's passionate, sin-destroying love for this world. And, you know, to be honest, we probably want to leave the whip-wielding to Jesus, who actually knows how to be angry and not sin. I'm still working on that. But we can pay attention to what he does here, and we can figure out ways in our own lives to follow suit. We can figure out ways to disrupt what's contrary to the world that God wants. We can remember that God's anger from start to finish is always redemptive. It, it's always towards the goal of newness and wholeness and beauty and flourishing. Even, even when it seems harsh, it, it's because there's so much at stake. You know, the goal is always uh, to get the dream of all things new back on track. 
So, so let's get into the story and see what the Holy Spirit might be calling us to through it. You know, this is interestingly one of the few stories that all four gospel writers tell. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all show us uh, Jesus making a ruckus in the temple. Uh, some of the details are different, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke all put the story at the end of their gospels. It's the thing that gets Jesus in real trouble, uh, where John puts it at the beginning. But the point is that it has something essential to do with what Jesus is about. Everybody seems to think this story matters for the gospel. And one of the challenges is to know exactly why. And people disagree about this. So many people have written about this, and lots of them just don't see eye to eye. Some people think this is an indictment of the temple itself. But others, including myself, don't think that kind of lines up. Uh, some people have used this argument as a case for Jesus supporting free market capitalism, <laughs> while others insist that it demands a kind of Christian socialism, which gives us a, a hint at how odd it is and how hard to pin down. So we should probably be humble in our reading. But what most people seem to agree on is that when Jesus shows up in the temple, something has gone awry. You know, other writings from the time make clear that the temple authorities had kind of manipulated this system that was supposed to bring God's people into God's presence and passion, and they'd, been, they'd used it for themselves, for their own benefit. You know, one Jewish writer of the day uh, has this to say about the priestly elites. He says they're deceitful men, self-pleasers, hypocrites in all their dealings, who love to have banquets each hour of the day. <laughs> devourers, gluttons, who eat the possessions of the poor from sunrise to sunset, saying, let us have luxurious seats at the table. Let us eat and drink and let us act. <laughs> let us act as if we are distinguished leaders. Yikes. Now, even allowing for just a hint of authorial bias here and acknowledging that the temple leaders are not around to defend themselves, um, there seems to be very little question, generally speaking, that what Jesus encounters is a system that keeps the comfortable comfortable, makes the rich richer, and gouges the poor, all while claiming to be the way that draws people into God's uh, presence and purposes. And Jesus' anger about this is nothing new. Right? God's prophets have always gotten angry about religious practice. They've had harsh things to say about religious practice that doesn't take seriously the good of the poor or worse, encourages injustice. Now, God's passion will always work to disrupt the ways and means that undermine the movement of justice and kindness and love, which is to say that at the end of the day, Jesus is not advocating for any of our preferred and flawed religious or economic systems. He's disrupting the current order of things for the sake of something new. It's what Jesus does then and now. And, and I, I should say that I've just made a distinction that wouldn't make any sense in the first century between economics and religion. You know, in the first century, economics and religion and, and politics, for that matter, were not separate things. The temple that Jesus arrives at really is the heart uh, of the, the religious, financial, and political life of the people. These, these were so entwined in a way that is kind of hard for us to comprehend these days that you really can't talk about one without the other. In fact, there isn't one without the other. They, they were part of the same whole, which actually is a more helpful way for us to think Christianly about what Jesus is doing here and what it means for us. 
I mean, after all, God's desire is not for our lives to be divided into different categories, as if how we spend our money is not related to our worship, or how we vote has nothing to do with our faith, or how our work is not affected by what God's up to in the world. God's desire is for our wholeness. Everything we do is meant to be bound up in God's good pleasure. It all matters to God. You know, one of the beautiful things about the life of Jesus is that it makes clear that God is profoundly concerned uh, with everyday life on the ground, concerned enough to move into the neighborhood with us. And and to that end, if we as Christians, we're going to choose one of those words, uh, religion or politics or economics, to talk about what Jesus is about, it wouldn't be uh, religion or politics, it would be economics. And and maybe not as we tend to think about it. I can see Denton smiling there. He's he's here for this. Uh, and and I'm, I'm sure that uh, the economists among us would have a more subtle understanding, but when I think economics, I think money right away. Uh, and there's no doubt that Jesus is disrupting the financial flow of things when he tears through the temple, throwing coins around and chasing livestock. And, and after all, this is a festival time, John tells us, so it's going to be a good week for those who make money off the temple taxes and sacrifices, and Jesus definitely disrupts that. But it's about more than money. I I was reminded recently that the word economics comes from uh, a Greek compound word, oikonomia, uh, which is made up of the word oikos for household and namos, which means rules or law. So it literally means household rules, right? That's why schools used to teach home economics, which is kind of redundant if you think about it. But that was, at least in theory, how to run a household, how to do the things that make a home function well for the flourishing of all of its members. We, we often use the kingdom of God uh, or kingdom of heaven as the Bible regularly does to describe the world that God will, uh, the world as it will be when God gets the world God wants. But we could just as easily talk about the economy of God, which might translate better actually for us. We don't live in kingdoms. And an interesting side note is that the prophet Zechariah promises that on the day of the Lord, that when God's will is done on earth as in heaven, there will be no more traitors in the house of the Lord, he says. All right, one economy will be fundamentally disrupted for the sake of another. Uh, one set of household rules will be traded for another. Uh, our way for the way of God's household. And I think we're catching a glimpse of that in this story. Okay, This is a bit of rebellious street theater to let us know that in Jesus, God is on the move. God's economy has come near and things are going to have to change. And I think that John, by putting this story at the beginning rather than the end of his gospel, is inviting us to pay attention to what it's going to be like from here on out. He's saying from the get-go that the way of Jesus is going to be disruptive and other than the ways we're used to, than the ways we expect. And sometimes, depending on where we sit, it's going to be different than what we want. You know, the economy of God is not especially good news, not obviously good news at any rate, for those who are deeply committed to the way things are. The rules of God's household are going to be different. How we're going to act is going to be different. Who's allowed in will be different. Who's going to be first is going to be different. How people come into God's presence is going to be different. In God's economy, things get topsy-turvy. In God's economy, the first are last and the last are first. In God's economy, enemies are the object of love and riches are vastly outweighed by justice. In God's economy, it's the pure and the peaceable and the persecuted 
and the poor, the, the meek and the mourners and the merciful who are the blessed ones. You know, the Bible ends with this vision of, of God's economy as a multi-ethnic, wildly diverse city built along the banks of the river of life and nurtured by the tree of life that is for the healing of the nations. God's economy has life and healing at the center of it. And here at the beginning of his gospel, John is calling us to pay attention to what it looks like to build the household of God, the economy of God, and to be members of it. He's setting us up to see this community that will include the religious elite, the Pharisees, and then, you know, women of questionable reputation. We'll include blue-collar fishermen and white-collar tax collectors, the poor and the outcast, alongside those in seats of power who know that the way things are is as threatening to them as anyone because what good does it do us if we gain the whole world and lose our souls? Now John's inviting us uh, to have an imagination for a way that is not ours but that has claimed ours by grace. The, a way that will grab hold of our hearts and change our lives and through our lives change the world. And what, what makes Jesus' anger here different than so much of the anger that we're used to is that it's tied up in the promise that Jesus comes not to destroy but to save. That Jesus comes uh, not to take life but so that we might have life and have it abundantly. I think it's important for us to understand, to remind ourselves again, that when Jesus confronts and disrupts us, it's always an act of passionate love. He's willing to give up everything to disrupt the things that bind us and weigh us down, even if we want to cling to them. I think it matters that we see in him a God who's angry for the sake of love, angry for the sake of life. I think it matters that we have a God who will not sit back passively, but who will take on the things that would destroy us at great personal cost. A God who doesn't get angry at the things that would kill us is no good to us. We don't need a God who's not committed to overthrowing those things. I think it matters that here we see in Jesus the promise of what's coming so that in him we can start to live for it now. And that really is the point. You know, at the end of God, uh, John's gospel, 18 chapters away, at the end of John's gospel, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, which is the seal on the promise that what he's about is what God's about, John is going to come right out and say that everything that he tells us about Jesus is so that we can learn to have life, present tense, have life in his name. Life in Jesus' name. Life in God's economy right now. And we're not supposed to just sit back and watch Jesus tear through the temple courts. We're not supposed to just wait passively for pie in the sky when we die. We're supposed to join him in our lives with whatever we've got in actively seeking to disrupt the things that run contrary to the household of God, the way of love and justice and righteousness for all things. You know, St. Peter in one of his letters says that, that by God's glorious goodness, According to the God's immeasurable grace, we've been given everything we need to live in the way that we've been created to live. In other words, we have everything we need to bring about God's economy here and now. So here's, here's a few things to, for us to prayerfully consider as we finish up. What tables are we trying to sit at that Jesus is trying to flip? 
What ways and means are we clinging to that Jesus wants to chase out of here or scatter like so many coins? What is the Holy Spirit calling us to with, with what we've got and trusting in God's goodness and God's capacity to do more with what we bring than we can imagine? What's the Holy Spirit calling us to get righteously angry about for the sake of God's love in the world? Where do we need to embrace the promise that we are made for God's household and nothing less? To see, as John will say later on, and to know what love we have been given, that we should be called the children of God, that we are members of God's household. May it be so. Amen.